all scripture is given by God for our benefit if we will receive it. Now, Paul told his son in the faith, Timothy, that every verse of scripture, every verse is useful for teaching. What did he mean by this? First, scripture tells us what is displeasing to God, what is wrong in his eyes. In other words, by scripture, God calls us out when we're wrong. Second, it corrects us by showing us what is pleasing in God's eyes, what he considers to be right attitudes and right behaviors. And then finally, over time, it trains us to be righteous in our character as God is righteous in his character. Now that said, it seems obvious that some passages in scripture are a cut above other passages. In other words, today's interaction between King David, his prophet Nathan, and the covenant God, it is the very first time in scripture that God made it clear that he would send an eternal human king to earth And this human king would rule forever. Now, the gospel portion, which was given 1,000 years later, says this king is also the savior of humanity. These passages, and I thought about this yesterday, I may make the case they are the best, but they are clearly in the top 10 the top 10 of scripture, showing the teaching and teaching. So, you know, through an illustration in real human lives, we are taught the strong love of God for frail, sinful human beings. Now, let's dig into these prime cuts, to use a restaurant term, so we can know God better and appreciate him more. First, the passage from 2 Samuel, the historical prophets. We'll sum it up quickly. David at rest in a cedar house wants for, uh, to build a house for God. But when God says to him clearly, no. However, he does tell him more, that a descendant of David will build a house for God, and this descendant will be the eternal king. So David was at rest in a house of cedar, and he told Nathan the prophet that God's ark shouldn't be dwelling in a tent, 
But Yahweh ended up telling David, David would not be the one to build him a house of cedar. Let's now look at it line by line. Then it came to pass, I love the King James translation, because King David dwelt in a house and Yahweh had caused him to rest from all his enemies, he said to the prophet Nathan, I'm dwelling in a house of cedar and God's ark is dwelling in a tent. Now, when he says rest, what this means is that David is experiencing, experiencing a settled and secure rest. He's actually finally, for the first time in his life, no longer at war. There's no longer violence going on. Now, when it comes to a cedar house, I was reminded of my childhood. And when we went to a distant relative's farmhouse in upstate New York, I hope you have all had the experience of going inside of a fully cedar-lined closet and closing the door. It's one of the most heavenly smells I've ever smelled in my life. And in scripture... Cedar is used as a synonym or a, a symbolizing blessings and luxury. And then as David's enjoying his cedar house, he makes it very clear because God's ark is in a tent, he's concerned that his God is worse off than him. David can't stand that thought. And then the prophet Nathan immediately responds, all that is in your heart, go, do, because God is with you, Yahweh's with you. Now, Nathan is hasty. We've already heard the whole story. There's no evidence that he took even a moment to pray or to seek God for his will. And as we've already heard, Yahweh immediately corrects Nathan for his hasty answer. The very next words are that same night, the word of Yahweh came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says Yahweh, would you build me a house? Would you build me a house to dwell? So, Nathan is now corrected by God himself for not speaking for God to David. That was his own answer. And with a rhetorical question, God clearly says David will not build a house of worship for him. Yahweh continues, because I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought Israel up from Egypt. To this day, I dwell in a tent and tabernacle. In all the places I went, did I speak with the shepherds I commanded over the tribes to say, why have you not built me a house of cedar? It is now about 500 years since the tabernacle had been built according to the very detailed instructions that were given to Moses on the mountain, the exact instructions. And then again, God, by 
questions is directing the conversation. He asks all of these tribal leaders, remember, David is only the second king ever over Israel. They had been a confederation of individual tribes. And he said, I commanded leaders over all these tribes to to shepherd my people, to feed them. Did I ever speak a word to you all? Did I ever ask for a cedar house? Continuing on, he gets to the heart of the matter. And this is where we see how wonderful God is. Then he tells Nathan, he will build a house for David. Think of that. And then after David dies, his seed will be raised up as the eternal king or Messiah until eternity of eternity. Continuing, thus shall you say to my servant, David, Yahweh of hosts, Yahweh Savaoth says, I took you from following the sheep of the pasture to be prince over my people, and I have been with you cut off your enemies, and made your name great. So this is all specific to David. Remember when Saul rebelled against Yahweh as the sin of witchcraft, he chose a young shepherd, David, and made him king instead of Saul. And then he reminds David of three great acts he's been doing for him. He has, first of all, been with David everywhere he has gone. And he has cut off all of David's enemies. That's why he's now settled and secure in a deep rest. And he has made his name great like the great ones of the earth, even beyond. He continues, I will make a place for Israel and plant him to dwell in it for him. And he will not be troubled and evil men shall not afflict him as they had at the first. So now he's again, he's talking to the nation of Israel as a singular nation. All of them are descended from the one man. And it's a two-sided blessing. Positively, he is planted this nation descended from Israel to live in his own place. And this isn't really negative, but what he's telling him is it will no longer be bad. You'll no longer be afflicted or troubled by evil people. It's a win-win, two great things. And then he says, from the day I commanded judges, remember that 300-year span of judges, over my people, I have given you rest from enemies. And Yahweh declares, Yahweh will, one, make to you a house. You're not making me a house. I'll make to you. And after you die, I will raise up your descendant, and I will establish his kingdom And I will build a house for my name, and I will establish his kingdom forever. Now, literally it says this euphemism, when your days are full and you rest with your fathers. That's how the Bible says you're dead. Next, he says, I will uh, establish his kingdom. 
Now, this is a, a double prophecy. There's many of them in Scripture. First, he means that Solomon will be king after his father. But the descendant who is the eternal king with the eternal kingdom is no one less than Jesus, the son of David. And then he says, he will build my house for my name. Again, a double prophecy. We saw this in Chronicles a few summers ago. Solomon built the great temple according to the plan Yahweh had given to his father, David. It was David's last charge to Solomon. But now, and we've studied Ephesians in this church, now Jesus is building a holy temple made up of both God's people, the nation of Israel, and people from all nations, every single nation on earth. God wants his people to be one people. Jesus is building this spiritual temple. So the bottom line here is this. Yahweh said no to David's desire to build a house for him. But instead, and I'm sure David never imagined this, and go and read on the rest of this chapter, you'll see how David was blown away by this word. He will build a house to David from his descendant. And yes, while David will die, the eternal king who will come from him will never die. Jesus is risen from the dead and he's alive forevermore. In the end, God's plan for David far exceeded his own plan for himself. And you know, I've walked with God for over 40 years now. One thing I have learned, when I don't get what I want and sometimes my heart is broken, I've got to realize God has something better for me if I'll just wait. You see, when God says no, he has something better in mind. He has a better way. So when David's descendants, this is another one, it's beautiful. When they commit iniquity, they'll be chastened. But Yahweh's strong love will not depart from David's line as it did with Saul, and his kingdom will be established forever. So, We saw this again in Chronicles. More than half of David's descendants committed iniquity, and some of them were outright bad. But what does God do? As a father, he chastens him. And he says, I may not do it directly. I may use the rod of men, and I may use the plagues that come on the sons of man. But my strong love always He says, my strong love will not depart from them. And remember Manasseh, after a lifetime of being evil, eventually repented. It won't depart from him as I took my strong love from Saul, whom I put away from you. And on the back of your bulletin, as I was preparing this sermon for this week, my morning read-through the Bible in a year calendar had me read Psalm 89. It's almost a full day's reading, but I put some of it on the back of the bulletin. 
And then he says it will be a forever kingdom. Your kingdom will be established forever. Living 3,000 years later, we know that's through Messiah Jesus. And then this part blew me away when I thought about it. And I don't know how many times I've read this chapter. It says, according to all these words and this vision, Nathan spoke to David. We can only wonder what the vision was and how marvelous it was given the power of the words themselves, which is all we have. Now, let's go forward to our gospel page, which speaks, or passage, which speaks to the fulfillment. So, in the beginning of the gospel, according to Luke, the angel Gabriel tells Mary, she must not fear, and she will give birth to a son called Savior, and he will be great, and the Lord God will give him his father David's throne. So first of all, Gabriel commands Mary not to fear because she has found grace with God and the son born to her will be called Yeshua. And the angel said to her, you must not be fearing, Mary, because you found grace with God. Now, this is a present tense imperative And I think what's happening here, Gabriel, which means mighty one of God. So he must have had an awesome appearance as God's messenger. He senses fear in Mary and tells her she must not be afraid while he is with her. And then he gives the reason. Mary has found grace with God. And I took some comfort as I thought about this, you know, because even people who put God totally at the center of their lives, they may not realize how much grace they have truly found from God. Mary didn't know. And then using one of the most common biblical words to get attention, behold, behold. You will conceive and you will bear a son. Now, I'm going to get really technical. It's not in the outline. These verbs are in the middle voice, which means both the subject and the object are interacting with each other. In other words, while God will do the heavy work, Mary will cooperate with him. And think of Philippians 2. We're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but God is working in us. And this is what's happening here. While Mary does her part to carry Jesus for nine months, God is always working in her. And then conceive and bear. So we're told later, the Holy Spirit will come over her and she will conceive. And although God, the Holy Spirit, is the Father, she will actually bear the son, natural childbirth. And you will, I'm sorry, yeah. And you will call his name Jesus. Now, Jesus is the English-Greek transliteration of Yeshua, which means Savior. And think of what 
we hear in Matthew's gospel, oftentimes at Christmas, the last week of Advent, he will save his people from their sins. And then this one will be called great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and his kingdom will not end. Okay, let's go through it literally. This one will be great and he will be called son of the highest. Now, none, we know this. If we know God at all, None is greater than the highest God. And this is what some people can't grasp that don't really know God. By being God's son, Jesus is as great as his father. And the Lord God will give him the throne of David, his father. This is a direct reference back to the prophecy that Yahweh gave Nathan that we consider earlier to give to David. In fact, the very name of God, the Lord God, is the Greek version of the full covenant name of God in the Hebrew scriptures, Adonai Yahweh. And this word through Gabriel declares once and for all that the Lord God is fulfilling his word to David through the life of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Savior, fulfills Nathan's messianic word to David. And then we get two great truths here. And most of us can be thankful for the second one. But first, he shall be king over the house of Jacob to the ages. Now remember, in Genesis, Jacob's name was changed to Israel, which could either mean he will be a prince of God, that's how the King James chooses to translate the word, or it could mean he has prevailed with God after he had wrestled all night with God. So, the Savior will be king over the 12 tribes of Israel literally to the ages, or we can correctly say in English, for eternity. And now here's the last word, and I think it applies to most of us. And of his kingdom, it will not end. And this word end means end in every way. There is no limit to God's kingdom, not in its duration, not in the extent of the earth that it will cover, all nations, all ethnic groups, nor to the people who may enter. Okay? No one is excluded from God's kingdom. The only way we get excluded is by excluding ourselves. Okay? So... This kingdom will go to all nations and to all people that they may learn to obey all that Jesus commanded. We know these words from Matthew 28 and Acts 1. So here's the application of everything we've considered in scripture. 
Let us be so excited that Jesus has fulfilled God's word to David, given by Nathan, that we will work ourselves so that no one is excluded from God's kingdom. And also, may we be motivated to seek God as to how we can work in him to hasten its consummation using a phrase from the last chapter of Peter's second epistle. You see, Jesus the Savior fulfills Nathan's messianic word to David. So let's just quickly summarize the key facts of our scriptures for this morning. David, who's at rest in a cedar house, wants to build a house for God, but God says no. However, God will make a descendant of David to be the eternal king. Now, some 1,000 years later, Mary is told her God-conceived son will be called Savior, and the Lord God will give him his father David's throne. Jesus is the eternal king and Messiah, prophesied. Over 3,000 years ago, he fulfills Nathan's messianic word to David. 